The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Hello everyone, welcome to this week's edition of the History of the World podcast. We've got a special episode this week, commissioned by Nick Barksdale, the Study of Antiquity and the Middle Ages YouTube channel owner, who has asked for an episode about the Mississippian culture. Mississippian culture is a culture suggested to have existed from around the year 800 through to the European colonisation of North America. We need to be very careful though. When discussing the cultures of Europe and Asia, we have this lovely convenient progression from Neolithic societies through to the introduction of writing, or indeed other cultures who could write, and some very definite identifications of cultures who would either develop a more modern way of life or become exposed to more modern ways of life in a way that can be tracked. In the cases where we have little direct evidence, there are often clues left to us by ancient explorers and scribes whose discoveries can be deciphered and compared, allowing historians to construct a likely story. In the case of the Americas, we have a sudden leap forward from a very Neolithic and nomadic way of life to a very immediate introduction of Renaissance European culture. This brought with it a desire to lazily label Native Americans as a backward society of the Americas whose lands were simply fair game until more modern historians had a desire to understand and respect these cultures. Today's episode is about the Mississippian culture of the Native Americans. However, the nature by which we call the Mississippian culture is with a discoverer's eye. To call the people of the Mississippian culture Mississippians is a categorisation of a style of culture. The Mississippians didn't identify themselves as Mississippians, so even though they lived in a world that was travelling through medieval times, the analysis of this culture is much more like the analysis of Mesopotamians and Egyptians during prehistoric times. The Mississippian culture is a culture considered to exist in North America directly before and during the arrival of the first European explorers from the 16th century. However, it would be sensible for us to initially analyse the timeline of cultures leading up to the emergence of what we call Mississippian culture, so that we can apply some context to where Mississippian fits into North American history. It became obvious to colonial settlers from Europe that centuries-old civilizations had occupied the great expanses of land in North America and must have had a more complex way of life than they might otherwise give them credit for 
upon their first encounters with the Native Americans. This is very much illustrated by man-made mounds that can be found across the Midwest and the south of the modern United States. When we talk about the Mississippian culture, we are targeting a period in North American history from around the year 800, through to the arrival of European colonisers. The reality is that the mound-building cultures of ancient North America date back very many centuries before this period, but it is very much an important feature of Mississippian culture. The construction of mounds is a feature of human history in general, and especially since human life became more urbanised and the numbers of cooperative humans in one area were at a number where large-scale construction, such as these mounds, would be realistically achievable. The oldest known earthwork mound in North America is at Watson Break, near to the Washita River in the US state of Louisiana, and dates back to around 3500 BCE, which is over 4000 years before the dawn of what we term as the Mississippian culture. Its proximity to the river is quite typical of most of the mound-building societies of ancient North America, so the Mississippian culture really takes its name from the river as opposed to the modern state. The Mississippi River carves a line right the way through the United States of America, from the area of the northwest directly west of the Great Lakes, right the way southwards where it empties out into the Gulf of Mexico. The Washita River eventually empties into the Mississippi River itself. So mound builders existed in the Americas for millenniums before the Mississippian culture emerged. The emergence of the Mississippian culture was not the result of an event or a migration, but was simply an evolution of the cultures already living in the Americas at the time. It is an historical reference for a vast group of North American cultures that were still tribal, but had no national identity. Their advancement from their ancestors is that they displayed a tendency for urbanised and agricultural ways of life. So even though the mound-building aspect is a fundamental aspect of Mississippian culture, it is certainly not a distinguishing factor. Interestingly, when we look at North American mounds, we can see a desire to construct large-scale, high-peaked buildings that had little other purpose than to be an impressive-looking demonstration of cultural and multi-handy cooperation and dedication to the spiritual essences of the sky, such as the gods, or to honour a deceased and often venerated human being. The fact that human beings saw fit to do this in many areas of the world can only be seen as a natural reflex to living in a large and successful ancient society. So we can use the pyramids of Egypt, the ziggurats of Mesopotamia, the pyramids of Peru, the pyramids of Mesoamerica and the pyramid of the Qin dynasty of China as examples of this. 
we can compare these achievements to the wonderful great temples, megaliths, monoliths and astronomical observatories to the same set of human emotions. Certainly in my home country of England, ancient people built mounds, but not on the impressive scale of the Mississippians. As is very typical with American history, before the arrival of Europeans during the age of global sea voyage and discovery during the middle of the second millennium, we don't have anything in the way of contemporary writings to tell us anything in detail about the great societies of the Americas that existed. So the earliest European explorers and historians would take wild guesses about the origin of these impressive mounds upon their initial inspections. Some would feel that it had to have been impossible for the Native Americans that they discovered to be capable of achieving such things as massive scale constructions and suggested that there had to have been a migration of classical world peoples across the Atlantic Ocean that had long since disappeared. With the advent of modern science, we can quite effectively date the mounds. So if we consider that Mississippian culture in general emerged around the year 800, then we can confidently say that they inherited a mound-building culture that had already existed for many, many centuries already. Our mentions of the earthwork mound at Watson Break near the Washita River from five and a half thousand years ago validates that theory. However, the nature of the mounds altered to include some much more elaborate earthworks, often in the shape of animals, which is comparable to the great geoglyphs of the Nazca in Peru from the first millennium. The very well-known earthworks at Poverty Point were constructed in the modern state of Louisiana, just like Watson Brake, but during the second millennium BCE, so well over a millennium after. During the first millennium BCE, a number of sites appeared to prosper, but this time it was in the north of the lands of the modern United States and centred around the Ohio River Valley. These sites are attributed to the Adena culture and represent a recognition of there being a proliferation of such sites in North America during this period, which is referred to as the Woodland Period of North American history. The Woodland Period leads into the Mississippian Period. The Adena culture were very much into their mound building, and this was a millennium before the Mississippian Period. Many historians would attribute mound building to a community effort, and this is generally only possible when an agricultural surplus can be made available to feed the workers. Agricultural surplus is generally only possible where a society is somewhat sedentary and somewhat successful, living in an area of fertile land that is not too susceptible to floods or droughts. So the Adena culture marked a period of human success in the Ohio River Valley starting around two and a half thousand years ago and their relatively intense mound building demonstrated a spiritual awareness. The Adena culture demonstrated advances 
in artisanry and trade in North America. It's important to state that the Adena culture did not have a national identity. They were a number of tribes and settlements that saw each other as trade partners or threats that would treat each other accordingly. And we can say the same thing about the future Hopewell and Mississippian cultures too. These cultural names are historians' labels to conveniently distinguish their periods from each other. Adena culture did represent a successful advancement of North America culture centred on the Ohio River Valley, and anyone who came into contact with the Adena culture would learn from it and improve from it. So we can see a spread of the Adena culture to a wider geographical area as a consequence. It is generally thought that the spread of the Adena culture was the immediate ancestor of what would be labelled as the Hopewell culture. The Hopewell culture did not replace the Adena culture, but it was more of a natural evolution from one to the other, where the success would continue and human development would advance. The Hopewell are distinguished by their long-distance trade connections which were centred around the American Midwest and the non-coastal lands of the American Northeast and would evidently have trade relationships with the societies of the Great Lakes including those people on the Canadian side of the lakes. They would also have trade relationships with the contemporary cultures of the Gulf Coast such as those who now occupied the lands containing Watson Break and Poverty Point, and the cultures of the modern American Deep South. Needless to say that the Hopewell cultures continued the tradition of mound building which helps to lead us up to the period and culture known as the Mississippian, who would be the next evolution of ancient North American peoples. The American author Charles C. Mann describes the Mississippian culture's mound building as being akin to the medieval European cathedrals. The spiritual centre point of a Mississippian settlement. Sometimes we would see a number of mounds of different sizes at one settlement. In other places we can see large earthworks that represent geometric shapes or even animals such as serpents but often we find that historians can argue about the age of such earthworks as they are definitely difficult to age accurately. One place that we can categorically state is a definite and outstanding place of what we may refer to as Mississippian culture and mound building is a place called Cahokia. Cahokia. When talking of the Mississippian culture, we talk of sites such as Cahokia. For those of us who study ancient history, we are in awe of the constructions of the stone brick pyramids in Egypt and often neglect the ancient constructions of the Americas. For those of us who study the ancient history of the Americas, our attention is often captured 
by the giant rock structures in Mesoamerica, such as those at Teotihuacan, for example. If one were travelling along the Mississippi River a thousand years ago, a wonderful sight would have emerged in the distance while travelling through the modern US state of Illinois. The largest man-made construction may have been taller than it is today due to the fact that it was built with earth rather than stone and may have slumped somewhat over the years. But the construction is comparable in size to the Pyramid of the Sun in Teotihuacan or the Great Pyramid of Giza in Egypt. Today we call this construction Monk's Mound which is a modern name. Where we know so little of Mississippian culture and Mississippian people, we can feel confident that the construction of such a sizeable earthwork can demonstrate a society of a healthy and united population, very advanced in agriculture and trade. Monk's Mound is among a site of dozens of smaller mounds, which is collectively called Cahokia. Cahokia, once again, is a modern name. We don't know what the city was called in its prime. Projectile points and other artefacts have been excavated at this site, which demonstrate that there is likely to have been a settlement here from around the year 600 or 700, which in our timeline is earlier than Mississippian culture. So it may have been that the Mississippian mound builders were the descendants of these first settlers as we have no reason not to believe that this site was continually occupied. Monk's Mound appears to be a ceremonial site with a wooden temple constructed at its apex which certainly demonstrates a great spiritual essence existed here. The settlement was probably successfully supporting a growing population who would have been cultivating maize among other crops, with maize being a staple crop of Mississippian peoples in general. The peoples would have constructed pit houses on sunken bases, not unlike the kind of basic houses created by the first semi-nomadic societies in Japan, for example. The Mississippi River would have been utilised as a bustling commercial route of transport, providing the similar value of wealth to the people that a modern American railroad or freeway might provide today. There is evidence of ceremonial burials at Cahokia that demonstrate a hierarchy which we should believe would naturally have to exist within such a large and successful society. It would make sense when we study world history and ancient populations that a leadership elite was necessary for the cohesiveness of the settled population and we may assume a strong spiritual belief system as is typical for most global ancient settlements. Ancient monuments such as circular wooden post arrangements may have plotted sunrises and possibly acted as calendars to aid in the organisation of crop management. 
At its peak, Cahokia would have had a population perhaps as large as 20,000 individuals, which makes it the largest settled population north of the ancient societies of Mesoamerica, with Monk's Mound being the largest man-made ancient building in this same area of the world. Palisades were constructed around the city with guard towers demonstrating a requirement to defend the city from potential invasion when at its peak. There is also a somewhat typical consideration for the first ancient global urban centres. The Wider World Cahokia represents what historians believe to be the core area of Mississippian culture and as such is referred to as Middle Mississippian. If we travel southwards and downriver from Cahokia along the Mississippi River, we will come across its confluence with the Ohio River, which itself travels southwest towards this confluence from the modern US state of Pennsylvania, which is a few hundred miles away. The Ohio Brush Creek runs into the Ohio River, and it is on the banks of the Ohio Brush Creek that we've confined Serpent Mound, which is an example of the variety of the earthworks created in ancient North America. Its distance from Cahokia disqualifies it from being attributed to the Middle Mississippians. The mound is actually an effigy of a serpent swirling its way along a hilltop overlooking the creek. Its age is uncertain, with some attributing it to the Adena culture, which we know to predate the Mississippians by some centuries. Others argue that it is much more modern and contemporary with the Middle Mississippians who built the settlement of Cahokia, among many others, in the Middle Mississippian Valley. The contemporaries of the Mississippians from this area are referred to as the Fort Ancient Culture and are exclusive to the Upper Ohio River Valley and its surrounding area. They are certainly culturally distinct from the Mississippians, but there are aspects of Fort Ancient Culture that we can attribute to the Mississippians and this is illustrated well by analysing excavated ceramics. Mississippian ceramic culture is demonstrated by the shape of the vessels created and the mixtures used for ceramic production. This style of ceramic production evidently travelled into the areas of the Fort Ancient culture and became favoured over time, demonstrating a social and commercial link. So if Mississippian culture was able to influence other distinct cultures in this way, just how widely known was Mississippian culture in ancient North America? Adoption of Mississippian culture was much more prevalent to the southeast of the Middle Mississippian area and dominating the southeast area of the modern United States, so much so that this area is called the area of the South Appalachian Mississippian culture, despite this area being considerably east of the Mississippi River Valley itself. Historians suggest that the adoption may have been down to two things. Firstly, a simple migration of culture, and secondly, a necessity to advance to keep up with their powerful neighbours to their northeast. 
so we can really see an influence of Mississippian culture spreading across much of the eastern half of the modern USA to one degree or another during its peak around 1100 to 1200. Lifestyle We can go back to the persuasive theory of Mississippian culture being a far-reaching and influential culture that stems from the ceremonial centres and capital cities such as Cahokia by examining some of the mounds such as Mound 72 at Cahokia itself. Mound 72 is the most impressive burial mound of all and is the final resting place of some literally highly decorated individuals that can only have had a very important and high standing within their society, possibly part of the ruling elite. The amount of accompanying skeletons found at this mound suggest mass human sacrifice and the natures of their burial placement, grave goods and body conditions points strongly towards great ceremony and considerable planning. One of the aspects of Mississippian culture that we believe boosted the health and wealth of the people was the introduction of widespread maize farming. Maize farming complemented the traditional North American crops such as squash in that they could be grown together. Maize farming culture would have migrated from Mesoamerica but it is unclear whether there was a meeting of Mesoamerican culture and woodland cultures and to what extent if there was. We can feel confident that Mesoamerica was the origin of maize farming culture of the Mississippians and we can feel somewhat confident that the fertile banks of the Mississippi River enabled Mississippians to be able to settle into a fully sedentary lifestyle which was an advancement to the lifestyles of previous semi-nomadic cultures. Diet would have been supplemented by advancing fishing techniques including capturing fish from the rivers by poisoning them first. Certainly shellfish would have been captured from the rivers too and the shells themselves would have been saved to be used for the production of intricate artworks that would have been used to enhance trade opportunities and ceremonial decorations such as those used at the burial sites such as Mound 72 at Cahokia. The engravings and carvings of shells represent spiritual effigies of animals and anthropomorphic beings as well as attractive geometric designs. As mentioned before, the Mississippians were experts in ceramic production using crushed shells to temper the clay that they used so that it would survive its firing process and it's this technique that migrated along the Ohio River Valley to the Fort Ancient Culture as mentioned earlier in the episode. The pottery produced by the Mississippians demonstrated the same inclination towards effigies that we have seen within the shell carvings and mound buildings of the same and associated cultures of this area of the Americas.
in order to maintain control over these large societies that would have depended on a well-organised and well-defended agricultural settlement, you would have needed an elite class who were respected as the leaders of their societies and were a class above the general population. This has led to historians referring to the Mississippians as a culture of chiefdoms, and it is likely that the highest class of individuals would have been the military and spiritual leaders of the society as well. The general populations would have looked to the chiefs for their daily guidance. The burials of bodies give us a lot of clues about the social hierarchies of Mississippian culture, with the common man granted a very local, familiar and simple burial compared to the lavish, large-scale and ceremonial burial of the chiefs. So now we have some description of what we have discovered and deciphered from Mississippian culture. Let's find out what the discovery of this culture was like for those first European explorers and migrants. Hernando de Soto So, let's find out about the first European explorers, who Hernando de Soto is, and the impact these visits had on the area of the Mississippian culture. Cahokia appeared to slip into a decline around the year 1300, as can be symbolically demonstrated by the slipping of earth down the sides of Monk's Mound that was never repaired. It seems that Cahokia may have been abandoned, but it is not wholly clear why. Perhaps the climate of North America was not as advantageous as it once was during the most prosperous times for the city, during the medieval warm period, which was a period of favourable climate. It may have been that the people of Cahokia chose to move on as opposed to there being a bloodthirsty end. Some prehistoric settlements can run their course with the land being over-farmed and a bulging population being severely affected as a result of the consequences of low agricultural yields. This can lead to a steep decline. Some experts suggest that there may have been floods during this period that were large enough to destroy many of the residences of the city. We can assume that the city was abandoned by around 350. The Mississippian culture continued to exist anyway over its vast area of influence. Spanish explorers began showing an interest in the lands of North America when they discovered the Florida Peninsula in the early 16th century. A wave of Spanish conquistadors would begin to visit these newly discovered areas of the world. One such conquistador called Panfilo de Narvaez ended up in Florida in 1527 thanks to inclement weather conditions at sea but he proposed that his party attempt to explore and colonise the lands. The Narvaez expeditions were ill-fated. He had already lost half of his Spanish contingent due to shipwrecking since leaving Spain and of the 300 individuals who did end up in Florida only four would survive and arrived back in the relative safety of the lands of Mexico, after almost ten years of ordeal 
and have seen their comrades killed trying to escape the dangers of North America and its hostile tribes by sea and at the hands of the hostile tribes themselves who had held them captive. Panfilo, the Narvaez himself, died of a fever in 1528, which was the same year that another Spaniard called Juan Ortiz landed in Florida in an attempt to find the missing Narvaez expedition. In 1539, another Spanish conquistador called Hernando de Soto had been willingly sent to colonise La Florida by King Carlos of Spain, more well known to history as the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. Over 600 individuals travelled with de Soto to La Florida with all the basics required to establish a colony. De Soto would actually find Juan Ortiz, who had already been in La Florida for over 10 years, for the most part as a captive, but had learned to communicate with the local tribesmen and could therefore act as a translator between the natives and the foreigners. Despite this, the natives were highly suspicious of the Spaniards and De Soto was forced to keep moving northwards. In fact, De Soto travelled hundreds of miles and through many lands that were of South Appalachian Mississippian culture. De Soto would constantly move from tribe to tribe, chronicling his experiences while negotiating both friendly and hostile encounters while moving through the lands of the modern US states of Georgia, the Carolinas, Alabama, Mississippi and Arkansas before crossing the Mississippi River to modern Louisiana. The year was now 1542 and De Soto contracted a fever before dying in these lands. Another man called Luis de Moscoso Alvarado led the remainder of the expedition through Texas and onto the relative safety of modern Mexico. Their collective experiences were the first recorded European experiences of the Mississippian culture and have fed the intrigue of later Europeans and modern Americans in this culture. And not least of all, one Thomas Jefferson, the third President of the United States, who would experience his new country expanding into traditional Mississippian culture territories in the early 19th century. Between the 16th and 19th centuries, repeated visits by European colonisers and explorers had a heavy impact on those remaining Mississippian cultures that Hernando de Soto had discovered. As European exploration intensified, the Mississippians were not technologically equipped to be able to continually resist them, and European diseases would infamously diminish population numbers and send the Mississippians back in time to a much more nomadic way of life in their smaller tribal numbers. The chiefdom system was undermined and unsuited to these dramatic changes for the indigenous people. Those that remained found that they were adopting aspects of European culture such as horsemanship, and this would irreversibly change the native culture to one that was now recognisably distinct from the traditional Mississippian ways of life. 
So, even before the creation of the United States of America, the modern country that would consume the lands of the Mississippians, the traditional Mississippian from the days of Cahokia, had all but disappeared anyway. This week's episode of the History of the World podcast was made at the request of Nick Barksdale. And Nick is the owner of the YouTube channel, The Study of Antiquity and the Middle Ages. Nick has contributed a great amount towards our project here at the History of the World podcast. Uh, Not only has he uh, been a great benefactor to the project, uh, but also he has uh, created multiple, almost like maybe almost two dozen YouTube videos Um, based around the recordings of the History of the World podcast and he has uh, created some great vivid and attractive imagery and video footage um, that accompany the texts and the stuff that I read out online and uh, and they're worth a view, they're they're wonderful to watch if you love the History of the World podcast then I'm sure you'll get a lot of pleasure from Nick's work. Nick has not been very well as of late and um, we really do wish him uh, the very best um, of health and uh, the successful recovery and a speedy recovery. Um, Nick, get back where you belong, um, producing history documentaries, supporting the online history community and doing what you do so well. There are so many followers of his channel that appreciate Nick's passion and dedication for the field of history reporting um your uh, your presence is being missed at the moment and uh, we we look forward to days where you will be back and feeling fighting fit happy and healthy and um this uh, this this uh, particular episode was an absolute pleasure for me to make and i hope that you do gain some pleasure from listening to it nick uh, the whole history of the world podcast community wishes you a speedy recovery Now next week is a very, very important week for the History of the World podcast and it is because it is the launch of Volume 4, highly anticipated and it's it's almost here. So well done to all of you who have waited for many months while I've had a bit of a breather and uh, done a lot of writing so there's already a lot of uh, material all ready to go and, and you'll be absolutely fascinated and whisked away to the medieval world and we're going to start our journey with plotting the rise of Islam and the rise of Islam influences an area of the world um, that is so rich in history storytelling and uh, it goes on to um, affect the Persians, it goes on to affect the whole of North Africa, the entire Middle East, Um, it leads us into the stories of the Christian Crusades, and it also leads us into the story of conflict with the Byzantines and uh, Ottoman expansion into Europe. Um, We have so much to talk about um, in terms of the, the first few episodes of volume four and it will lead us nicely into Christmas so um, I really do hope you're excited looking forward to the journey and it's almost upon us you've only got one more week to wait so 
Uh, looking forward to the launch of Volume 4 next week. Now, you don't have to be a YouTube channel owner to commission your own special episode of the History of the World podcast. So just like this week, which was a special episode commissioned by Nick Barksdale, we also had one last week, which was commissioned by History of the World podcast listener Shane Smith. And Shane Smith made accumulated contributions to the podcast and ended up earning the right to ask me to write the episode. And last week's episode was on the Icelandic poet called Snorri Sturluson. And you too can earn the right to commission your own special episode of the History of the World podcast. All you need to do is go and visit the Patreon website. So become a patron of the podcast. Go to the Patreon website. You can access it through the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website. Click on the Patreon link and it will take you through to the Patreon website. And there are a list of rewards that can be earned, not just by making monthly contributions um, of a certain amount, but also accumulating lifetime contributions. You can still earn the rewards that are posted out there. And it would be my pleasure to be able to honour those rewards, including the right to commission your own special episode. Go over and have a look. When you make a contribution, you earn the distinction of becoming a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. And this week, we welcome in uh, Luke F. Halter. We welcome in David Peace. And we welcome in Andres Altazar into the History of the World podcast Illuminati. We also welcome Eddie Martinez. All Welcome into the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. Thank you very much for your contributions and welcome on board. Thank you very much for helping to support the podcast and keep it going. Question time. Now, one of the rewards that we offer to History of the World podcast Illuminati members when they reach a particular threshold is the ability to ask me a question uh, that well, I will answer during uh, the end of a podcast such as now so um, we did have one this week and um, it's a it's a big one um, it's from uh, Lauren Tauever who has put hey Chris love your work bro my question I will ask is this what does history teach us what lesson if internalized and put into practice would begin in our collective consciousness a positive metamorphosis my answer to this is the lesson of perception to realise that we are not separate from our perceived environment or from the minds of our human family. We are all connected and what lays ahead for us is to become connected through the love of what is good, true and beautiful. I can't wait to hear your thoughts, brother. Thank you for all your hard work and time. From the Pirate Law Sarit. So, very big question there. Um, I'm just going to try and break it down because I'm sure you could make an entire podcast series about what history teaches us. Um, but I think the lessons of history are an incredibly individual thing. So what I learn from it will be different from what the next person learns from it and what the next person learns from it. History teaches us something different. So in, or, in order to learn from history, you have to be interested in history. And some people are, are just not particularly interested in it. And uh, that's fair enough. And, and as I say, it's an incredibly individual thing. Um, in a very fundamental sense, in a very um, 
in a very, to put it in a nutshell, history can teach us not to make the same mistakes twice. So, for example, your knowledge of history. So, for example, if um, you know if you if you burn a pizza in the oven, that history lesson will teach you not to burn that pizza in the oven again. But likewise, that that's a very basic thing. We can also learn how to maybe cook a pizza if it's if it's in a cookbook, for example. So the written word is also a history lesson. And we can apply that to great societies. So, for example, the works of someone maybe like um, Chanakya, who was the political advisor to Chandragupta Maurya, who um, who started the Mauryan Empire of uh, India. Um, the works of someone like that. So he he put his own wisdom down in writing um, on matters such as um, financial management of your empire and of philosophies um, that would enable um, future people to sort of reference his work and learn from it. So you can learn from other people's history in that manner. And, and that's probably a great example of, of many literal, literal works that have been um, created in the past that uh, leaders have used to learn from and to strategize from. So the lessons of others um, can have an impact on future histories. And I think one of the, the biggest things that pops into my mind when I think about the lessons of history is when I look at the beginnings of World War One, for example, and how all of the countries were ready for warfare, and that there was a there, Europe was basically a pressure cooker, um, waiting to explode. The countries were ready to do war, and the reason why is because it had been many generations since the sheer horror of war on your own doorstep had been experienced. Nothing like that had been experienced in Europe since the Napoleonic Wars and there was a period of relative peace throughout the late 19th century so societies had forgotten the sheer horror of war and when the First World War started it was only meant to it was never meant to be a war on the scale that it developed into it was supposed to be um, a correction of the balance of powers of Europe basically which often happened when in history when uh, one society maybe became more powerful than another um, you'd find that there would be uh, um, alliances of nations that would correct each other that would balance each other out um, in order to make sure that one didn't become mighty and powerful and this was really the the pressure cooker of world war one where we see the german empire becoming quite powerful and uh, quite influential and that there had to be a rebalancing which is why the russians and the french and, and eventually the british uh, were ready for war and so the lessons of the horror of warfare had been forgotten and therefore, um, the reason why there's been relative peace and why the Cold War didn't escalate after World War Two was because the horrors of war had been readily experienced in living memory in World War One and World War Two to the point where societies were reluctant to actually make the first move into warfare. So... We see a lot of proxy wars nowadays, which um, which is sort of a direct 
lesson from those societies who've been involved in war and understand the impact and the horror of war on their nation. So, so it can have some very, very um, telling influences. The lessons of history um, can have some very, very um, influ- influential um you know, it can have a high influence, I should say, on the decisions of nations in the future. So, um, so yeah, so from burning a pizza to preventing World War I, um, yeah, that this is why you can go from uh, one extreme to another. I suppose, for me, when I read about history, it certainly gives me a sense of perspective about my own life and where I fit into my society, where I fit into the world and where I fit into history in general. So it sort of gives me a sense of perspective on my own life a bit. So for me, that's what history teaches me. But I'm sure all of you, as I said at the start, um, all have your own individual feeling about what history teaches you and what it does for you. And uh, it's the same for all all the billions of people across the world and all the many, many millions of people that have ever lived. But uh, thank you, uh, Lauren, for such a uh, such an interesting question and um, I'm sure others will have interesting questions that will uh, be answered in due course, certainly through the episodes of Volume 4. So keep your ears open and, and we'll maybe get round to your question at some point. But thank you, Lauren. The Ancient World Cup. Now, I'm very excited to introduce a new feature into the History of the World podcast. Uh, each week, uh, we're going to be uh, hosting the Ancient World Cup. Now, what on earth am I going on about? Well, um, I was inspired by one of my favourite podcasts, The Rex Factor, who actually ran a, a polling competition on social media to crown the greatest monarch of English history. And uh, just out of interest, the result was Elizabeth I, uh, who was the Tudor monarch, uh, daughter of King Henry VIII, and famous for uh, holding off the Spanish Armada in the 16th century. Um, But uh, as for us, we're going to run a similar competition. Uh, We're going to run it each week, and we're going to have 64 ancient world teams entering into the ancient world cup so it's going to be rather like the soccer world cup where we invite uh, everyone from around the world to enter but this time we're using ancient nations cultures and peoples to represent our teams and there's 64 teams uh, they're all going to initially go into groups of four just uh, because we want to do a random draw we're going to post a, um, a poll certainly on twitter and maybe other social media platforms i haven't quite made my mind up yet but we will see four of these ancient world teams. So, for example, we're going to have a team for the Romans. We're going to have a team for the the Athenians. We're going to have a team for Han China. We're going to have a team um, for um, the Teotihuacanos of Mesoamerica. Uh, we're going to have a team for the Gupta Empire of India, um, uh, the, the Achaemenid Persians. Everyone who has featured in volumes one to three, basically, are going to have a team entered. And it will be up to you, the humble listeners of the History of the World podcast, to choose who you want to advance. So, like I say, the 64 teams will go into 16 groups of four initially. You will vote for who you want to progress, who you think should 
and deserves to progress on the basis of anything you like. Um, so there's no restriction as to why you will vote. You vote for whoever you want, the coolest, uh, the greatest, whoever you like the best will advance. And we, we draw them into groups initially just so that we don't... So, so for example, if the Romans go up against the ancient Egyptians then um, in, in round one, then and if it was knockout, you'd lose one of those great nations. So we want to try and encourage um, any potential... Um, you know, strong mismatches like that, or any, we we would like these stronger teams to progress. So, but there is still that opportunity. So, if you get a, a smaller group, such as ones that might contain the Allens, um, the Anglo-Saxons, the Cassites, um, and the Hetfelites, for example, just picking four out at random, then uh, you there is an opportunity to uh, for one of the smaller. Um, cultures of the, of the ancient world to progress into the next round. So uh, we're going to make a random draw during the week. I'll post something on the History of the World podcast website so you get sort of a flow chart or something of that nature so that you can follow the progress. And, and then hopefully over the course of the next year, we'll boil it down to your winner, your winner of the Ancient World Cup. So it'll all be down to you. I won't have any influence on it whatsoever. It will be over to you, the listeners of the History of the World podcast, to pick your favourite culture of the ancient world. So look out for that next week, the launch of the Ancient World Cup. Listener messages and reviews. The first message is from Nicholas Kerr. He's written in and said, Hi Chris, I took your advice and started listening to the History of Finland podcast. It's great. What a smooth voice and great accent. Thanks. Yes, the History of Finland podcast by um, a very, very good friend of the History of the World podcast and uh, a History of the World podcast Illuminati member, Matti Yokimo, who um, at the moment, I believe, um, I haven't heard from Matti for some time, but I, d- I do believe that he uh, he has been busy this year. And um, I'm looking forward to, to him hopefully resuming the History of Finland podcast at some point. But yes, um, an incredible podcasting voice and a wonderful accent. And and you're right. Um, it's, you know, I'm sure it's much more attractive to listen to than my accent. But then um, obviously I've got a bit of a complex about my accent, as many History of the World podcast listeners have uh, highlighted in the past. Um, and they're always quick to say that they enjoy it. So, um, but yes, the, uh, you know, our accents are, should be embraced and, and Matty Yokomo has got a, a golden accent. So hopefully he'll be back where he belongs podcasting in the future. Uh, we have a message from uh, sent in from a lady called Sophie who's put, Dear Chris, I would love to give a five-star rating to the podcast because I really enjoy it and appreciate the amount of information and how comprehensive they are. Please could you advise where I can do this? Kind regards, Sophie. Well, Sophie, thanks for taking the time to write in. Uh, not all platforms will allow you to rate and review, but um, it does help the podcast if your platform does allow you to do that because it will enhance its ratings in the charts for that podcast platform and then expose it to more listeners which is ultimately what we want to um, to give more success to the podcast in the future and uh, so um, mainly Apple iTunes uh, Apple Podcasts I believe it's called nowadays 
um, will allow you to rate and review the podcast. Um, so that's probably the one place where I visit the most to find uh, the podcast uh, reviews that I read out each week. Um, but other than that, I mean, uh, you know, if you if you rate and review it anywhere, it's always going to be helpful. So, so thanks for the message, Sophie. Well, good people of the Hot World community, that's it for another week. And uh, next week will be the launch of Volume Four, the Medieval World, and our first episode plots the rise of Islam. So, not to be missed. Please do join us next week, and until next week. Be good. The History of the World Podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the History of the World Podcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at History of the World Podcast at mail.com. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.